A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Conservative Party is a junkie for immigration. They are hooked on cheap foreign labour. For... What sort of country have we allowed ourselves to become that we can't protect our borders? It's a rapidly diminishing pool. I'm having to transfer my affections to 20-year-old English footballers. Two. You know nothing about football. You just sit there <laughs> looking at their thighs. One. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Now, Jill Scott. She's my kind of girl. That's what I said during the introduction to Planet Normal on the 4th of August, just after England's football lionesses had beaten the Germans to become European champions. While the world was fixated on Chloe Kelly, the goal scorer who ran across the field stripped down to her sports bra, my eyes were drawn, as I said at the time, Alison, mm. to Scott, the midfield mid-30s workhorse. 161 England caps over 13 years. The engine, the heartbeat of that all-conquering team. And now Alison Jill Scott, in your eyes anyway, has outdone herself because she beat your old friend Matt Hancock <laughs> on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here to become Queen of the Jungle. So what? If there's now a flood of emerging evidence of the damage caused by the COVID lockdown, who cares about Tory defections, the UK's broken borders and growing industrial unrest? Because just as you were glued to I'm a Celebrity, Alison, now you're glued to the Qatar World Cup, (laughs) where England beat Wales 3-0 on Tuesday, progressing to the last 16 as the group stages come to a close. So here's a question for you, Alison. How do you reconcile your obvious love for defeated Wales with your obvious infatuation with England midfield dynamo, Jude Bellingham. He's a real good-looking boy. I think I'm transferring my affections now to um, little Philly Foden, who looks like the the love child of Mr Spock and a Helena Bonham Carter, a sprite. <laughs> you know nothing about football. You just sit there looking at their thighs. No, it's character study for me. You forget sometimes that I'm a novelist. I like all the sort of rich interchange of personality. But as you say, co-pilot, it's hard to get any gloomier, isn't it? As we're going on air, they're basically saying that the the 999 calls are going to be on strike and the ambulances. So even if you wanted to call an ambulance, A, there isn't one and B, there isn't a place to call. Who said things can't get worse? But we did have, as you said, we did have the final of Vima Celebrity. And I hope listeners all saw the definitive picture of Matt Hancock with a toad sitting on top of his head. And it's hard to tell which reptile was more put out. And as you said, Liam, we did predict from the start that Jill Scott, the marvellous Sunderland lass, wonderful ready wit, trumped the fake Hancock with her genuine, really the best of British, I thought Jill was. And I think for Planet Normal listeners who don't watch it, I watched almost every episode. And I think my favourite moment, just displaying Jill's quick wit, was when Matt Hancock was temporarily the leader of the jungle and he was reading out the jungle rules. And Jill asked innocently, are those guidance or rules, Matt? (laughs) Which was absolutely... Because Hancock had explained to the campers that when he was caught snogging his aide during lockdown, he was not actually breaking any of his own rules because they were only guidance. Cannot make this stuff up, but a national treasure is born. And apart from the football and the I'm a celebrity, with Hancock being away in the jungle, but he's coming back and into the throes of the COVID inquiry, which we hope is going to be fair and transparent, don't we, Liam? And it was interesting this week because we did see a few more COVID truths emerging. We certainly did. Matt Hancock there serving 
his constituents of West Suffolk during a cost of living crisis <laughs> in Australia, trousering hundreds of thousands of Aussie dollars with that reptile yeah. on his head. I think we should mention at the top here the quite astonishing pictures coming out of China in terms of those COVID protests. The Chinese population, the massive Chinese population now, swathes of them determined not to withstand ongoing draconian lockdowns when it comes to COVID. Mm. And of course, China relies on growth. It relies on prosperity. That's the deal. The sort of burgeoning middle class generally agrees to live in an authoritarian country as long as they keep getting richer and their kids keep getting richer. But they are finding their voice and they're determined not to be locked down. These are the same COVID taxes, of course, which Jeremy Hunt extolled the virtues of before he became Chancellor. And I thought it was absolutely delicious, but also deeply hypocritical to see that clip of Justin Trudeau, the Canadian princeling (laughs) premier, when he said, Canadians are watching these protests in China. I think all people should be able to protest when they want to. This is the bloke that stopped Canadians from protesting, literally banned access to their bank accounts. I mean, it's just unbelievable hypocrisy. Oh, what a prize Pratt he is. I mean, honestly. He's the sort of bloke you would have fancied before lockdown, but now you don't. Is that fair? It's a rapidly diminishing pool. I'm having to transfer my affections to 20-year-old English footballers. He's 19, actually. <laughs> Is he 19? Oh, yes. I was going to say you're old enough to be his mother, but then I did the maths. <laughs> Probably old enough to be his grandmother. Uh, in fact, I think Phil Foden, age twenty. No, he had little Ronnie Foden when he was twenty. I read about that. Read about that today. As you say, Liam. I mean, the clampdown by the Chinese government against people protesting now being condemned by people in the UK who demanded that our own country pursued a zero COVID policy. And you'll remember, Liam, I mean, it's all into the mists of time now in a bit, but I don't think we should forget that those of us who protested here about that mad approach, all the Planet Normal crew, our admirable crew, sticking up for personal liberty, angry about cruel and unnecessary measures, predicting the collateral damage to non-COVID health problems, not to mention the impact on the economy, we were shouted down and looking at the pictures from China, lucky not to be tasered and dragged off by men in white astronaut suits. But I do think there are just sort of signs now of, if not exactly apologies, then just sort of mild concessions. So we saw the Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, who I think we both rather like his forthright approach. Steve was at the Spectator Health Summit this week, and he said that the rising number of excess non-COVID deaths were being driven by patients who had not got timely care and that the NHS should be more transparent about the excess deaths. In England and Wales, there have been 8% more deaths recorded this year than the average. And with your brilliant economics hat on, Liam, you will tell me that after a pandemic, you would expect the deaths to go down. That's right, because to put it bluntly, the weaker people have been already subject to... the disease and therefore have died. He said it explicitly, didn't he? We know, said Steve Barkley, the current health secretary, from the data, there are more 50 to 64-year-olds, this is a direct quote, with cardiovascular issues. It's the result of delays in that age group, seeing the GP because of the pandemic, and in some cases not getting statins for hypertensives in time. When coupled with delays to ambulance times, we see this reflected in the excess death numbers. Now, I'm speculating, Mm. but I imagine there were boffins within the Department of Health that didn't want their Secretary of State to say that Mm. because that is legally admissible. And so there could well be court cases. And indeed, Steve Barclays said the NHS has set aside £1.3 billion to cope with compensation claims arising for the pandemic. I think, while that's a huge number, £1,300 I think in the grand scheme of things, it's a very small number. I think they're going to need a lot more cash than that. 
I do too. And Steve Barkley did say, in time, we may see a similar challenge in the cancer data. Well, I hate to break it to Steve, but we're seeing the cancer deaths rise already, as we've had on Planet Normal. Listeners will remember both professors, Carol Sakura and Pat Price, who've both been front and centre demanding that we have catch-up for cancer and this absolute disaster is unfolding before us. But as you say, Liam, I think this is in its own way the first public acknowledgement by a member of the government of what we have been saying since May 2020, closing vital cancer and cardiac services, postponing scans and surgery in the cause of a single virus which was going to kill people often over the average age of death. Now, that doesn't make the loss of those people any easier for their families to bear, but nevertheless, it's true. And these other diseases, which are now really starting to take a toll, many will be deaths among the younger population. We always said, didn't we, that the shutting down of non-COVID health services was going to end up killing more people than COVID. And it gives no one on planet normal any satisfaction. You can't just say, I told you so, because it's too horrible. But yes, there is going to be this compensation pot. And I think that that is a basically, I think a lawyer would say that they are admitting there were what they call avoidable deaths. And as one Telegraph reader commenting under the story this week, his father's treatment for lung cancer, if you can believe it, had been paused. Lung cancer, treatment paused. And the reader said, I don't care about their money. I'd rather have my dad back for just a few months. So there are going to be tens of thousands of those. And I guess you'd need an actuary to tell us what the compensation is going to be. But I think I agree with you that 1.3 billion is a very modest estimate. And it won't be our NHS paying the bill, Halligan, will it? It'll be the British taxpayers, some of whom told them that they shouldn't have pursued that policy. Can I just say, do you know what still makes my blood boil? Matt Hancock. (laughs) Apart from him, apart from him. It's a shame in the jungle. Do you remember? Quite nice, actually. Do you remember all those great kind of jungle, those sort of Bob Hope things, where they used to put someone in the jungle into a large pot over a fire? That would have been the perfect ending with his little baldy head sticking out. You used to get them in the comics, and you'd have. Animals, One of the, let me say, local people sort of chopping up a <laughs> carrot into the pot with yes. this guy in a pith helmet getting boiled. <laughs> getting boiled. But that would have been perfect for Matt. But the response still is out there, unbelievably. Ah, but it would have been so much worse if we hadn't locked down. More people would have died of COVID. So it was a small price to pay. No, £379 billion and tens of thousands of younger people dying of cancer and God knows what. We've actually had lots of letters, haven't we? We've had lots of emails this week about the health service. So no, I will never to my dying day agree that lockdowns were a small price to pay. I think it's unanswerably true now to anyone who's objectively looking at the data, of course, lots of people aren't objective No, when it comes to this, that countries like Sweden that locked down a lot less, it cost them a lot less in both human and monetary terms. Yeah, yeah. If you compare California and Florida, it's pretty much unanswerably true now. And I think what Steve Barclay's doing, he's getting ahead of the inevitable argument that emerges, the evidence that emerges during scoping out exercises when lawyers bring cases against the NHS. I think that's now inevitable. And into this mess, of course, we've also got to consider that the Royal College of Nurses, they voted to strike their 19% pay claim, uh, has been rejected by the government. The government, in fairness, has implemented the recommendations of a pay review body, independent pay review body, giving nurses on average 4% after a wage rise last year as well of 3%. So RCN are striking on the 15th and the 20th of December. We've got other industrial action. As you said, we've got 100,000 civil servants striking soon, border force, DVLA, postal workers striking, firefighters are balloting. We've got the British Medical Association, the Doctors' Union balloting over their 26% 
pay claim. We talked a lot about the winter of discontent, Alison, didn't we? Yeah. And it seems finally to be here, possibly power cuts and all. There was some warning this week, wasn't there? I got all the candles out. (laughs) Survivalist. I think in future weeks we should just move to describing the groups that won't be striking because it'll probably be shorter. About planet normal strike. Can you imagine? (laughs) Our phones will go ballistic. All the (laughs) listeners saying, where is it? Where is it? I mean, look, a lot of people say it isn't the winter of discontent. On the other hand, trade union membership now is about 25% whereas it was 50% when we were kids in the late 70s. Yeah. But the public sectors, about 50% of them are unionised. And during lockdown, a lot of those teaching and health unions became a lot more militant. And so I do think we are going to get a lot of public sector strikes on top of the private sector ones that we're also seeing. And I'd say that I wrote about this on Sunday, Alison, in my column. We'll put the link to both our columns in the show notes of the episode I'm not sure that the public's necessarily going to back the nurses unless they climb down from 19%, because very few people in the private sector are getting 19%. A lot of people in the private sector aren't getting any pay rises at all. On the contrary, Steve Barclay did say that the nurses' pay rise was not affordable, and I was interested to hear that each additional 1% on a pay rise award is another £700 a year, and the country very clearly can't afford that. I agree that I think there will be people instinctively don't like nurses going on strike, do they? I think they feel that they're there for caring for other people. So they take a risk. I think not all the nurses are in that union, are they? We should point that out. But something that struck me today as we're recording was the absolutely plunging popularity of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt totally down amongst Conservative Party members in the wake of the stinging tax rises in the autumn statement. So the Prime Minister's net approval has fallen from 49.9% on the 3rd of November to just 9% this week, while Jeremy Chinese Communist Party hunt is on minus 9.9%. Coming up on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Just in terms of some basic maths, Alison, the public sector pay bill is roughly £200 billion, okay? So if the whole of the public sector got a 10% pay rise, which is roughly an inflation-linked pay rise, that's £20 right? And the government so far accounted for a 2% pay rise because the OBR and the Bank of England's projections on inflation a while back, were so wildly out of kilter, they should have listened to some other people. So if there's a 10% pay rise across the public sector, that's £20 billion. That's 4p on the basic rate of income tax. Yeah, It's astonishing amount of money. You're right, of course, the RCN are just one part of the population of nurses, and we want nurses to be treated well, of course. And we should also say that within the RCN, they've said... They're not going to abandon emergency situations and A&E. It doesn't apply there. And it's a responsible journalism to mention that, of course. But I do think 19% will get up people's noses, even if it's our nurses. It will. But I think, again, a running theme for us is that there are not enough staff. Absolutely astonishing dereliction, I think, on behalf of, well, the Conservatives have been in power for 12 years. Part of this striking, Liam, is that the fact that they're under astonishing pressure because there simply aren't enough doctors and nurses. We're dependent on foreign energy and we are dependent on foreign medical staff. And that's a stupid position to have got ourselves in, particularly when we know that so many of our own highly qualified young people with strings of A-stars and so on, really keen to serve the country in a medical capacity and turned down because of a, a stupid cap. No cap on the number of people who can migrate into the country, Liam, but caps on the number of brilliant A-level students who can become doctors. But, and no cap, it seems, Alison, on the number of NHS employees who earn hefty six-figure salaries, yeah, as well as all the other pension benefits and conditions that come with working in the public sector, often far superior to private sector workers. I'm just looking at a report from our superb Telegraph Health editor, Laura Donnelly, earlier this month. NHS England employs more than 400 bureaucrats 
on over 100 grand. The chief exec earns a third more than her predecessor. Over 100 get at least 150,000 pounds. These are people who, yeah, they work hard, but 150 grand when you've got no like capital of your own at risk, you're not an entrepreneur. It seems far too much. If you want to work in the public sector, then work in the public sector. But don't expect investment banking salaries. Listen, before we move on, I know a lot of listeners last week, it's a very positive story amidst all this gloom and strikes. Last week, we heard from Hannah, not her real name. Hannah was writing to Planet Normal about her little boy, aged two and a half, who has hereditary large tonsils, which are making it increasingly hard for him to breathe or eat. And after an emergency admission to A&E, a consultant told Hannah her son had to have his tonsils out as soon as possible. But of course, as we heard the other week from Dr. Claire, there is now a Kafkaesque process of telephone appointment, going on the waiting list for the appointment to go on the waiting list for a tonsillectomy, estimated wait time, 2.5 years. Anyway, Liam, some lovely news. Two fantastic Planet Normal listeners were so shocked by Hannah's story that they offered to pay for the operation themselves. And Heather wrote to us saying, I've just caught up with Planet Normal and I was appalled to hear the sad story from Hannah about her son's tonsils. Many years ago, my own youngest child had a similar problem, which was remedied quite swiftly by the NHS. Hannah says in her email that she can get the necessary surgery in weeks if she goes private, but she clearly cannot afford it. Do you think I could pay for it for her? It would give me the greatest pleasure to help her son. Would you and Liam be able to ask her to get in touch with me still loving your fab podcast, Heather. So Liam, I forwarded the offers to Hannah and she replied, wow, I'm amazed at the kindness of strangers. I think that my parents and my husband's parents have managed to pull together the money for our son's operation. But I will contact Heather to thank her for the immense generosity of spirit. And Heather then wrote to us, I had the sweetest reply from Hannah, hugely relieved to hear that her parents and in-laws are planning to fund her little boy's tonsillectomy. Just such a shame that she has to fight so hard for such a basic operation. I hope it goes well and transform her son's life and hers. And well done, you and Liam, for publicising it. So just immensely positive there. But as Heather says, quite extraordinary that in the National Health Service, which takes over £150 billion of taxpayers' money every year, a two and a half year old boy who's struggling to swallow and has sleep apnea. So he stops breathing in the middle of the night, estimated wait time for take his tonsils out two and a half years. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea... Please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! So with immigration very much in the news co-pilot, I thought listeners would enjoy hearing from the UK's leading authority on this fraught subject. Alp Mehmet is the chairman of Migration Watch UK, and he has his own fascinating immigrant story. In 1956, at the age of eight, Alp came to the UK from Cyprus with his parents. He spoke no English. The Turkish-speaking family rapidly assimilated into their new country. After graduating in 1970, Alp became an immigration officer, 1979. He became entry clearance officer in Lagos, Nigeria. And four years later, he joined the diplomatic service, serving in Romania, Germany and in Iceland. Alp Mehmet was appointed ambassador to Iceland in 2004, one of the first two British ambassadors from ethnic minority backgrounds to be appointed to that role. 
Now in his 70s, Alp has been a tireless campaigner for transparency on immigration numbers. Recently, he wrote, It seems that the Tony Blair government wheeze that threw open the UK's borders is in danger of being repeated and on a whole new scale by a Conservative party. Treasury orthodoxy is on the verge of triumphing yet again and to hell with the consequences for the British people. So, Liam, I began by asking Alp Mehmet for his reaction to the extraordinary announcement by the Office for National Statistics that UK net migration in the year to June had hit 504,000, the highest figure ever recorded. I found it quite breathtaking, actually. It really was a shock. We expected it. We even predicted it, frankly, going back to the time when the white paper was first uh, introduced, what was going to happen, changes to the visa regime. And all this was put in place as the points-based system, of course, after Brexit. And we were saying that we thought the non-EU migration would probably more than double. It was 225,000 net at the time. It's half a million now, so we underestimated in a way, despite the fact that there were a number of people at the time, I won't name them here, who said that we were scaremongering and it wouldn't happen. Well, it has. And frankly, it's something that the government should look closely at. And it's about time that they started looking at the sort of policies that would control this level of migration. After Brexit, voters thought they were getting control of their borders. They're going to get some reduced immigration. The Conservatives 2019 manifesto said there will be fewer lower skilled migrants and overall numbers will come down and we will ensure that the British people are always in control. Well, clearly out, the British people are very much not in control. Why specifically have we got such record immigration after leaving the EU? Partly because the government, I think, decided to divest itself of the mechanism for controlling people and effectively handed, just looking at employment and students, it effectively handed the responsibility of who could come here and with no limit to employers and indeed to the universities and higher education institutions. As things are at the moment, if you have a qualification which is somewhat lower than it was, essentially skilled workers could come here if they had the equivalent of a degree. That's been lowered to the equivalent of A-level or thereabouts. In addition to that, We've allowed ourselves and we've allowed our universities, particularly the less popular ones, to become dependent on the higher fee-paying students. And frankly, a lot of universities now look to overseas students because that's the only way they can make the numbers add up. Uh, Otherwise, they're in desperate difficulties. And those additional people actually are not just working and paying whatever tax they are, but they need a home and they need access to the NHS and they will have transport needs. All these things cancel out effectively. And that was the OBR itself saying it would cancel out any benefits in 2014, but they seem to have forgotten that. This is something I've got a real bee in my bonnet about because we hear about the Treasury enthusiastically endorsing immigration as a way to grow the economy. GDP gets bigger. But what you're just saying to me is it's basically loosening liberalisation of the system, which is bringing in more people who are not these highly educated, high skilled people we've been told to expect, plus the fact that the quality of life for ordinary British people, which is already under strain, isn't it, with transport, with housing, with health, with schools, that that takes a hit, doesn't it? It does take a tremendous hit. How does it manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself with longer queues, longer waiting lists, 
house prices go up, rents go up, simply because the demand is there, the supply is just not up to it. It's inadequate. It's not enough. That brings the sort of pressures that lead to people actually thinking, you know, why am I not benefiting from this supposed good that derives from people coming here? Why is my life so much more difficult now than it was? You've talked about this shortage of occupation list, which can be used as a bit of a ruse by businesses, can't it? Can you explain that to listeners? Yes, there are any number of jobs where the sector will make a case for saying we need more people, there are people whose skills are required, and we can't get them locally. Therefore, put them on the shortage of occupation list so that we can go overseas and recruit overseas. That may be true in some cases. But then there are sectors that there are jobs that have been mentioned, for example, broadband engineers. However, what we don't also hear is that uh, those who are on the shortage of occupation list and are brought in, employers need not pay them the full amount. In fact, they can pay something like 20% less or lower than the uh, going rate. So inevitably, that makes overseas workers more attractive. When did the level of education drop? When was that requirement lowered? That was introduced with the introduction of the points-based system, which came in at the beginning of 2021. Apart from the qualifications and the salary levels, what also went overboard at the time was the requirement to look locally first. There was a time when employers, they were obliged to advertise locally before they could go overseas. That no longer needs to happen. We know that a lot of students are coming in. What many people have been very surprised to find out is that students bringing dependents. What's that all about? They not only have been given the opportunity of working for two or three years beyond qualifying for their either degrees or postgraduate degrees, but those who are doing postgraduate courses can also bring in their family. The numbers have just shot up, 116,000 in the, in the year to June. We're looking at numbers that weren't far off the whole net migration figure in the mid-90s when new labour came in. So here we are in just one category alone, suddenly saying, yes, we can have 120,000 of your dependents coming here who can do any job, not to do skilled jobs or work or anything, take on any job that they can find. And they're prepared to work for less. It has to be said. That's why there's this continuous pressure on on the earning levels, particularly at the lower end. This point-based system, it's an absolute con, isn't it? I'm amazed. There was me trustingly thinking that we had an Australian points-based system in which you brought in highly skilled workers into the UK. I mean, it's the world and his wife and his auntie, isn't it? You make an exceptionally good point because <laughs> that's the reason why it was sold to the public was because it went down so well on the doorstep and in focus groups. They heard points-based system and it was linked to the Australian one or an Australian type of points-based system. But it's nothing like the Australian system. The Australians have an overall cap We've abandoned caps. We've decided that we can't have caps. Frankly, that was a total con. And when Boris Johnson in the 2019 election on TV uh, was asked whether the points-based system would serve to reduce numbers, he said, yes. After a little bit of hesitation, but being pressed, he said, yes, numbers would come down. 
Well, he knew full well that numbers would not come down. That was a total con. And that's why, frankly, uh, people in many parts of the country now see what has happened as a total betrayal of what they were led to believe would happen. In his autumn statement, Jeremy Hunt quoted these OBR predictions. They seem to be expecting at least 200,000 legal immigrants to keep coming in every year. As we've said, they claim that's the only way they can grow GDP is by importing labour. Alp, do you think that's sustainable? Well, 200,000, frankly, is wishful thinking on the part of Mr Hunt. It does, in fact, play into the traditional treasury approach to immigration. And over and over again, we've heard from senior officials how um, they welcome immigration because it grows the economy. But the Treasury never looks beyond what is happening in its own little territory. I don't think that 200,000 is sustainable, frankly. That is way, way too high. 200,000, I think that we're going to continue at um, 300,000, 400,000 for the next few years, frankly. And that means uh, so much more pressure on everything that we've been discussing, not least on the need for housing, which is, I think, going to play into a lot of the disgruntlement that is felt up and down the land. A source within the border force told me that they were warning the government last December, that's December 2021, that if they didn't act, 60,000 asylum seekers would cross the channel this year. What do you think the government should be doing? It's untenable. And what is happening at the moment is not going to ease up, frankly. We've reached 43,000, I think, now, which is considerably more than the 28,500 last year and very much more than the 8,500 or thereabouts that we had the year before. The numbers will simply keep going up because they can. <laughs> For so long as those who are picked up halfway across or make their way uh, without any help are allowed to stay indefinitely by virtue of having sort of come into our jurisdiction, as it were, I'm afraid the numbers will continue to increase. But even if it's only 50,000, 60,000, that's those that we know about, of course, and there are those that we don't know about. What sort of country have we allowed ourselves to become that we can't protect our borders, that anyone who chooses this country as their destination to live in, that somehow we can't say no to them or we are not allowed to say no to them. And indeed, the taxpayer has to foot the bill of whatever accommodation needs they have or medical needs and the rest of it. We can see that the UK has a much higher acceptance rate for asylum seekers than, say, EU countries. Have we got easier, looser requirements, or is it harder for us to say no legally? Well, legally, I don't think it's any harder for us than it is for the French. And yet the French, at the first decision point of people applying for asylum, I think it's something like... 20% are allowed. It's 70% with us. The average across the EU is something between 30 and 40%. Here we are allowing 70%. And I suppose some of that is to do with the fact that we've had the various problems with regard to removal and the hostile environment debate. Now it's really much harder I think, for the government to resist. They could, if they had the will, and if they had the courage. I'd like to believe that Suella Braverman, I think she, she does mean it when she says that she wants to tackle both illegal and legal migration. 
I'm not sure whether she has the necessary support in number 10. The fact is that the cabinet collectively is very much pro-immigration. Alp on Planet Normal, we like to hear a bit about the personal experiences of our guests. Just to give people a bit of a snapshot, you've got a rather marvellous story, actually. You came to the UK from Cyprus with your family in 1956. You were eight years old. You didn't speak English. You went to university, you became an immigration officer, 1970 to 79, then an entry clearance officer in Nigeria. In 1983, you went to the diplomatic service, serving in Romania, Germany and Iceland twice. And you were appointed ambassador to Iceland in 2004, becoming one of the first two British ambassadors from an ethnic minority background. What I'm getting at really is that you are an immigrant yourself and your experience of immigration has obviously been immensely successful. So you must understand the impulse of all those people wanting to come to this country and make a better life. I do. Of course I do. And I think immigration is a part of life. Um, Certainly in this country, it's uh, contributed a great deal. It isn't the fact that immigration is in itself is a good or a bad thing. It's just the scale and the level of immigration that we have now and have had for the last 20 years. I think that we need to be very careful, frankly, to the extent that we overlook the need to help people to integrate. I mean, this is my country. Um, I love Britain. It has made me, for good or bad, what I am. And I owe the country a great deal. What are your concerns? If we're to carry on, you know, you are the chairman of Migration Watch UK. If we carry on as we are for the next 10 or 20 years, what will the country look like? And what would be your fears? I really do believe that there are two very important aspects to it. One, immigration at the sort of level that we've got at the moment is economically unsustainable. It is a fiscal cost, as has been shown by uh, research after research, including by the UCL study of a few years ago, which showed that overall uh, migration had been a net fiscal cost to the tune of about uh, £120 billion between 1995 and 2011. That's one side of it. So we've got to reduce numbers for that reason alone so that we have less pressure on housing, less pressure on the NHS and the rest of it. The other thing that I believe is also important is that because such numbers make it so much more difficult to integrate, to uh, make sure that people become part of a cohesive whole that inevitably will lead to the sort of tensions from within that I hope we can manage. But I think that there are risks there to the whole cohesion of our society. We've seen recently that as communities grow in number and more and more are arriving, the sort of tensions that they bring with them do manifest themselves in those tensions breaking out in some way here. These are the sort of things that we should be mindful of. And it's all very well to say diversity is wonderful. And of course, we must embrace multiculturalism. Well, I'm not so sure, personally. Diversity is fine, but it has to be at a reasonable level and at a certain pace. Otherwise, you don't have the sort of cohesion that we will all wish to see. Alp, um, thanks so much for talking to me today. I'm sure you give Planet Normal listeners a lot of food for thought. Thanks very much. My pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Alison. Very interesting interview, Alison, with a very thoughtful man. I must say, I've looked on to the immigration debate with dismay over recent weeks and months. As you know, I'm from an immigrant background. I've highlighted over many years the economic benefits of immigration, but also the costs of immigration proceeding too quickly. 
it does tear at the social fabric with the gains from immigration accruing largely to the well-off and the costs of immigration at the sharp end being borne by those more dependent on services provided by the state, education, health, and so on. I would say, though, because so often the British public get accused of things from overseas, I've looked up statistics from the Pew Global Institute, which is like a global opinion poll service, very scientific organisation based in the States. And they show that the UK remains the most tolerant of and the most welcoming of immigration in principle of any European country, more than the Swedes, more than the Danes, certainly a lot more than the French, the Germans, much, much more than the Italians and the Greeks. The only two major countries in the world that are more welcoming of immigration than the UK are Canada and New Zealand, which are countries pretty much entirely built, aside from their indigenous populations, on waves of immigration. And there is a danger here, unless the Tories get hold of this quite quickly, but it is a legal and political minefield. I do not, for one minute, envy the Home Secretary, Swella Braveman, trying to deal with this issue. I think that's right, Liam. I think what you're saying about the very tolerant society, we should say, by the way, that in the UK net migration in the year to June, that record figure of 504,000 immigrants, that there were special cases, humanitarian visas included 89,000 from Ukraine, 76,000 Hong Kong, obviously people there under the cosh of the Chinese Communist Party, and 21,000 from Afghanistan fleeing the Taliban. Most people in this country have nothing but compassion and a warm welcome for human beings who are fleeing war or persecution. But as Al Mehmet pointed out, we also let in 116,000 dependents of foreign students. I think this is a a fast-growing scandal. I think the Conservatives have betrayed their voters of 2019. Net immigration was expected to halve to just over 100,000 after Brexit. Now we're being told by the OBR that it will be at least 205,000 a year. Alp confidently predicts it to be 300,000 a year. He's been right in the past. 300,000 a year, Liam, that's over three years. That's almost a million more people. Imagine, you know, 10, 15 years ahead. This is totally unsustainable. We have an NHS with 7.1 million people on the waiting list, and that is predicted to rise to 9 million people. What kind of country, what kind of government would add another million incomers over the next three years when you cannot provide healthcare, you cannot carry out a tonsillectomy on a two and a half year old boy for two and a half years. It's absolute madness. And not only that, the backlog on asylum decisions currently stands at 143,377. This is peak Velma stats, isn't it? 41% of applications coming from people who have travelled illegally to the UK in small boats. We are paying £7 million a day to put them up in hotels. And for obvious reasons, we've had several emails this week from listeners who've tried to get into hotels, which are filled with migrants. Things are kicking off in provincial towns like Skegness, which relies on tourists. People are in uproar. Now, I quoted in the column this week, I'll draw a breath in a minute, I promise, a senior source involved with a home office who says that there is no will, none, nothing, no will at all to do anything about this, any suggestion that's put to them to stop the illegal migration. Oh, but there'd be a terrible row. There's no political courage at all about this. What we are talking about, Liam, and I wrote about this in my column this week, the Conservative Party is a junkie for immigration. They are hooked on cheap foreign labour. I'm not naive. I know enough about economics to know we need immigration to keep the economy going, but they are growing GDP by growing the population and to hell with the impact 
on normal people trying to get housing, trying to get rental accommodation, trying to get school places. It's an absolute racket and so much for the Australian points-based system that we were sold. I'm sorry, I'm really disgusted. I feel sorry for Suella Braveman in the sense that I don't actually think she'll get the backing from Downing Street to solve this and she'll get the blame without the Prime Minister backing her up because I don't think the Prime Minister has got the stomach for it, frankly. David Davis waded into this debate, obviously a respected, humane person who's admired across politics, not least on the left, given his record on civil liberties. And he's accused, you know, working from home civil servants of systematically misinterpreting asylum law and granting asylum to people who have come over illegally in boats when they've come from safe countries in order to just move them through the system and society can deal with the constraints. We can sort this out if we want to, if we want the political will. You know, generations of immigrants have built the homes that they need and built homes for many other people as well, not least people that I'm related to. But our oligopolistic housing sector and our mad land and planning laws mean that we can't actually get these homes built for people. And of course, the strain on the NHS is intolerable if the NHS keeps absorbing so much money and inefficiency and massive fat cat salaries, again, for people working from home. So these are very, very difficult problems to solve. And I agree with you in the sense, I don't think the Tory party has got the grit or the determination to solve them. But do you think Labour will? No, I think that's one of my causes for despair, is I don't look at the political landscape and see, you know, we've got the Reform Party still very small, they probably would do something about it. But the two main political parties seem to be in sort of happy cahoots about it. I don't buy this representation of someone like me bringing up objections to it. My objections, Liam, are compassionate, but they show compassion for the British people who live here, including first, second and third generation immigrants. So don't say it's racist or not compassionate to object to this because this is going to affect, as you say, disproportionately the lives of the poorest British people who can't buy their way into private medicine, who can't move postcode to get their child into a nicer school. And I think that electorally, I mean, we know the Conservatives are on the ropes, but I think this is, we've just got Patrick O'Flynn, very brilliant political commentator, writing on the Daily Telegraph website today, the Conservative Party must become a genuine force for lowering the rate of immigration or else be replaced as the main centre-right entity in British politics. I 100% agree with Patrick, and I am genuinely fearful of what's going to happen if we allow this illegal migration across the channel, hotel rooms paid for by the British public at a time of a cost-of-living crisis when people are worried about heating their own homes, affording nice food for Christmas and so on. So I think that there is a genuine worry now about social unrest. Now on to our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. The inbox has been pullulating this week. Co-pilot <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> this is from Robert. Dear Planet Normal, I've just gone back to that remarkable street interview from 2020 in which straight-talking 83-year-old Maureen from Barnsley, when asked about her reaction to the area going into stage three lockdown, said, amongst other great quotes, by the end of this year, there are going to be millions of people unemployed and you know who's going to pay for it, all the young ones, not me, I'll be dead. Well, Rishi Sunak showered money on the unemployed and the recent autumn statement by Jeremy Hunt confirmed Maureen's prediction for those paying for it all will be the young and they will be paying in both higher taxation and the loss of opportunity in the declining British economy. The greatest irony of all is that Maureen, if she's still alive, we hope so, Liam, will be receiving extra money in her state pension. Why did we not listen to Maureen? You know, you could flog T-shirts. Keep calm and <laughs> listen to Maureen. <laughs> Maureen's definitely orthogonal to the orthodoxy, isn't she? I've got not one, but two Auntie Maureens. There you go. <laughs> this is from Jonathan and Adele. Dear Alison and Liam, 
In March this year, after several months of recurrent abdominal pain, our niece was diagnosed as having a large, complex cyst. Fortunately, it was benign, but it would need an operation to remove it. She heard nothing more. It later emerged she was not put on a waiting list. Instead, her medical notes simply said that she should be admitted for an emergency operation if she turned up in A&E. In August, on one of the hottest days of the year, she was in such severe pain that she could barely walk and her mother drove her to A&E. She was admitted and operated on the next morning. The cyst was very large, the size of a grapefruit, Mm. and it was already necrotizing. The surgeon had never seen anything like it. And unfortunately, an ovary and fallopian tube had been damaged and also had to be removed. God. The niece recovered well. And we are all obviously grateful for the medical care that she was eventually provided. But we cannot quite believe how such a high-risk strategy of delaying treatment until a condition becomes an emergency was considered to be, quote, health care. Perhaps this is one way of keeping waiting list numbers down. But it could cost lives and certainly increases the pressure on A&E departments. Keep up the good work, co-pilots. We haven't missed an episode. Jonathan and Adele. What a story, Liam. Their niece, you know, she could have never had children if, <laughs> because the cyst was left to develop until it was an emergency. This is from Carpe, very much singing from the Pearson hymn sheet. There is a very simple and sad fact. The overwhelming majority of our political class and civil service are pro-immigration, irrespective of the views of the British public. We have been lied to for decades. There are no net benefits of mass migration. Whatever you gain in workers, you more than lose on housing and infrastructure. Whatever the gains in GDP you appear to make, you lose in spiralling welfare costs or even the skilled immigration and the great NHS lie. Are those people posing the oft-quoted immigrant contribution to the NHS seriously suggesting that we could not train our own doctors and nurses? Our wretched politicians peddle this endlessly whilst deliberately reducing training places to far below projected need. Forget the liars of Conservatives and Labour. The only party that will address this issue for me is reform. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn. I think it needs to go to Jonathan and Adele, who can donate their rarer's rocking horse poo, Planet Normal mug, to their niece. Absolutely. Very, very well deserved. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help others to find the podcast and cheers up your weary co-pilots no end. It certainly does. And just to say, Alison and I will be at the Telegraph this coming Sunday, that's the 4th of December, answering the phone and taking donations for the Telegraph's Christmas Charity Appeal, which this year is in aid of Age UK, Action for Children, Macmillan Cancer Support and the Royal British Legion Industries. We certainly will. And the cost of living crisis has seen charitable giving decline. And these are four fantastic causes, but all taking a bit of a knock because of lockdown. And they need our help more than ever. So co-pilot Halligan and I, complete with reindeer antlers, jingle bells and a glass of mulled wine. Several glasses of mulled wine. (laughs) (laughs) You were snaffling up the snacks last charity day. I've never seen anything like it. No wonder the poor have got nothing to eat when you were at the sausage rolls. Anyway, we'll be there with many lovely Telegraph colleagues, Matt, Camilla Tomini, Charles Moore, Madeline Grant, all the others. We will be in the Telegraph office between 10.30am and 2.30pm on Sunday, as Liam said, to take your donations as much or as little as you like. It all helps to any of the charities that we mentioned. So please do call us for a Planet Normal chat on 0800 117 118. And that's 0800 117 118. And would absolutely love to talk to you. So those charities, as I said, Age UK, Action for Children, Macmillan Cancer Support and the Royal British Legion Industries. And that number to call will be on the Telegraph website and in the newspaper. So call us anytime between 10.30 and 2.30 in the afternoon this coming Sunday. Between mouthfuls of mince pie, Copilot will address your concerns. (laughs) 
And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.